Well, Father, thank you that you are a saving God and that you have a plan of salvation. Thank you that in your very essence, you are a refuge and you are strength and you are always a present help in time of trouble. And you can never not be these things. And thank you for providing us at the point of our greatest need and giving us the Lord Jesus Christ to come and substitute into our place that we can have a plan of salvation when we were most helpless and lost in sin. And now, Father, would you strengthen us as we study the word that we would live out our salvation effectively in this dark world. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I mean, just hypothetically speaking, if you have a baby boy, what would you name him? You get to have a baby boy. What are you going to name him? The top 10 names so far in 2018 are number 10, Aiden. Aiden. Number 9, James. Number 8, Elijah. Number seven, Ethan. Number six, Lucas. Number five, Mason. Number four, Logan. Number three, Oliver. I thought that was a tractor. Number two, Noah. Number one, what is it? Liam. So far in 2018, there it is. The most popular boys' names. It's interesting, three of those are biblical names. Conspicuous in its absence is the name Judas. Isn't it interesting that no one names their boy Judas? I mean, uh, let's say you were going to have twins and one was a boy and one was a girl. Would you name them Bonnie and Clyde? (laughs) Not to slight Bonnie and not to slight Clyde, but when you put the two together, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And isn't isn't it interesting that a name can taint. A name can bring imagery. And so it is for Judas, and we're taking the time before we conclude with two more messages out of Matthew only after all these years to focus on Judas. Judas, a man who had tremendous opportunity. He had opportunities that none of us in this room will ever have. And he wasted those opportunities. There are some lessons to be learned. I trust that you'll find it helpful. I know that you know a lot about Judas already. And I know that you know how he dies. The end of the story. And I thought it would also be beneficial for us to take a few minutes and try to gain a little perspective even on suicide this morning. So somewhat of a serious subject at hand. I'll do my best to be appropriate and careful. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to use verses 3 through 10 as the main part of our text. We will be looking in the scriptures in other areas to expand our thinking, and if you have your notes handy, I think you'll find them helpful. Let's read our text, Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 3. And then when Judas... His betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. The elder, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, 
I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. I want to comment on just a couple of things in our text, in the latter half of our text, because we'll not be breaking that section down so much. A couple points that I wanted to remind you of. One is this 30 pieces of silver. We commented this on a few weeks ago, but just a reminder that 30 pieces of silver was the price for a common slave in this day. And so our Lord was delivered over for the price of a slave. And isn't that appropriate for the ultimate servant, the ultimate slave He who served us with his very life. And there it is, our Lord Jesus. Secondly, there's a point here to be made in that there is a prophetic fulfillment from the book of Jeremiah. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that as Jeremiah said, they took 30 pieces of silver and so forth. And so what happened as Judas throws the silver into the temple court, he's filled with guilt and consternation, and the the inability to undo what he's done, and he throws the silver down, and they pick it up. Well, they can't put it in the treasury. It was illegal. They cared about certain rules that they had made, other rules they didn't care so much about. And they went and they bought this potter's field, uh, a place to bury homeless people. And Matthew says that that was prophesied by Jeremiah, but it's possible that you've encountered somebody who is a skeptic or critical of God's word, and they've done some research and reading, and sometimes people will point to this point and they say, now, it's not in Jeremiah. It's in Zechariah. See, the Bible is not reliable. It's in Zechariah 13, 11, and 12. You can write that down. You don't have to turn there. But it is a prophetic statement when it's in Zechariah, in Zechariah 13, verses 11 and 12. Why did Matthew say it's in Jeremiah when it's in Zechariah and it's not in Jeremiah? Well, there's a good answer for that. And let me begin by asking you this question. To whom was Matthew writing, Jews or Gentiles? His, His was largely a Jewish audience, wasn't it? And the context of Matthew is hugely Jewish. It's why Matthew, more than any of the other Gospels, references the Old Testament. Because he knew that his audience was very astute. And they were students of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. So what you need to understand, and it's really a relatively simple answer. You don't need to be intimidated by those kinds of things. In the Jewish mind, the Old Testament, as they understood it, would have been divided into three main books. The first would be the law. The second they called the writings. It would be the historical accounts, the kings and chronicles, some of the poetic literature, and then the prophets. So they had three main sections of their Old Testament as they thought of their Old Testament Bible, the law, the writings, 
and the prophets. The prophets section began with Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is one of the most extensive of all the prophets. And so often the, the prophetic books, which begin with Jeremiah, would be referenced as the writings of Jeremiah, or the section of Jeremiah. And so though Zechariah knew that he wrote it, the audience would have understood that it could have been included in any of those. And when he referenced Jeremiah, they knew that it was in the prophetic books. It was a prophecy written by Zechariah in this section of their Bible. They would have, the, the audience in Matthew's day would not have been confused by that. So there it is, a relatively simple answer. What I want us to focus on this morning in this passage is the reality of the opportunity that Judas had and how he wasted it. And not only did he waste it, but what a tragic ending he lives out. I want us, first of all, to realize that Judas was a privileged person. Judas was so privileged to be one of the twelve. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. God comes to earth in flesh, in the form of the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus. He's going to pick out 12 men to be his closest confidants, to be his students, to be the ones that he's going to pour himself into, to be the ones who will be charged with the responsibility of doing even greater works than he's done. And and you're one of them. You get chosen. Let's look at it in Matthew 10. Let's remind ourselves uh, how Matthew 10 records it. Um, And there, I want you to see something that's really interesting. Matthew 10, beginning with verse 1, is Matthew 2's account of the 12 disciples being selected or accounted for. And Matthew 10, 1, it says, And he called them, that would be Jesus, he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them, now look at this, and this is Judas, okay? He gave His 12 disciples, authority over unclean spirits, that would be demons and demonic activity, they had an authority to deal with this. It was very prevalent in this part of the world at that time. He gave them authority to cast them out and then to heal every disease and affliction. You think about being in a position like no one else had. An opportunity to have the power of Christ endowed upon you so that you could minister in his name, you could command control over demons, and you could heal people who are sick and lame. I don't believe we have any account until the book of Acts where we have the the raising of the dead, but they even had enough power to raise the dead. It does not seem that they were given power over nature. You don't have an account in the Gospels of them being able to speak to a storm, for example, over the Sea of Galilee and still the storm. You don't have uh, an example of them be able to necessarily take um, uh, and turn bread into more bread. To do the miraculous like that, out of nothing, ex nihilo, he creates things. So it seems that there were some limitations, but what a privilege to be part of the 12 and to have ministered with our Lord Jesus, to have him pour his life into you, to have him trust you, to be, to be one who was closest to him. Get that in your head. This is Judas. Judas ministered in the name of Christ. Judas cast out demons. Judas healed the sick. Judas proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privileged position. But... Boy, that's an interruptive word, isn't it? But Judas was, letter A, Judas was duplicitous. He was duplicitous. We know that, don't we? I know that we know a lot about Judas, and we know that he was a charade. He was fake. 
He was a hypocrite. He uses the word traitor in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, when he gives his account. You don't have to turn there. But you know what? It reminds us of the possibility of being close to Christ, of looking like Christ, of following Christ, of naming the name of Christ, and still having the ability to be duplicitous. We can do that today even, can't we? We can look like a Christian. We can act like a Christian. We can talk like a Christian. We can name the name of Christ and then turn our back on him. Letter B, I want you to see that he was dishonest. Let's remind ourselves of this. This is that fascinating story in John 12. Uh, Matthew has this story, but John gives more detail. Matthew, Mark, Luke, in 2.12. And notice, this is where Jesus was anointed by Mary. It wasn't too long ago that we had this story in our series, our sermon series. But letter B, he was dishonest. He was a disciple, but he was duplicitous and he was dishonest. Uh, They had been giving a dinner for Lazarus. Remember this? Lazarus had been raised from the dead by our Lord Jesus. What a wonderful time it was for them. They were so happy. And so they had a big celebration supper. And at that dinner, verse 2, for him, there Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. What a beautiful moment. What humility in her worship. And it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, there's that word again, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him. Every time the disciples record about Judas, they always put a little footboat. He's a traitor. He's a betrayer. I know they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I, I kind of tickles me that these guys couldn't hold back and make sure that everybody knew Judas was a dirty dog. He who was about to betray him, and he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That was at least a year's wages worth of money. He said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. There it is right there. Because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. What she does is a beautiful thing and it will be forever talked about among Christ's followers. So Judas was duplicitous. Judas was dishonest. We're in John chapter 12. Let's turn to chapter 13 of John and let's illustrate how devious he was. Let her see he was devious. He was a devious guy. John 13. And look at verse 21. You'll recall that in John 13, it's recording our Lord's teaching and, and his actions in the upper room. This is at the Passover the final night that he was betrayed, and John gives more detail than other Gospels. Matthew does not give near the extensive teaching that went on at the upper room table at the Passover. And Matthew doesn't record that he washed their feet. This is when he washed their feet. John records this. So John records extensive detailing of what went on, what went on in the upper room. And and after he had washed their feet, They're sitting at the table, and John gives more detail about the moment that Jesus announces that there will be one of them who will betray him. 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now think about this. This is a close group of guys. These are guys who've been together for three years. They know each other inside and out. They know how they think. They know each other. 
and they're sitting at this table. Our Lord has been teaching them. And then all of a sudden they feel a change because it says our Lord was troubled. And they could tell by his countenance something was wrong. And perhaps he got very quiet then. And he said, I'm telling you. And he didn't just say, let me tell you something. He said, truly, truly, verily, verily, I'm telling you, I'm telling you for sure this is going to happen. One of you will betray me. It must have got stone still in there. Are you kidding me? And now John is an interesting account. He's going to reference himself. Truly, truly, verse 21, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, he would be the big cheese. He was the head honcho of the disciples. He's sitting across the table. John is close, leaning against Jesus, physically touching him. Jesus says, "One going to betray me. Peter's thinking, I'm not on my watch. I'm going to whack him. So he signals over to John, either with his hands or mouthing the words, He signals, he motions, evidently made a motion with his hands that John understood that Peter wanted more information to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John continuing to speak about himself in second person, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, is it I? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now I want you to take this in. This is powerful. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And I wonder what Judas was thinking. So I'm going to tell you something. There were 10 men in the room who had no clue of what just happened. They didn't get it. There were two men in the room who understood precisely what had just happened. Our Lord and Judas. And he had the the devious audacity to follow through and reach his hand out and take the bread that our Lord had dipped into the stew and he put it to his mouth and he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was identifying himself as the betrayer. I fully believe that Jesus, I know Jesus knew what was happening and I fully believe that Judas understood exactly what he was doing. What a moment. How devious can you be to posture that kind of closeness and be willing to pay for his murder? Not only was he devious, but he was devilish. In John 13, it says it in Luke as well. Luke says the devil put it into the heart of Judas. John 13, look at verse 27. Then after taking... After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And so this raises a question to people. So was Judas acting willfully or was he a puppet of Satan? Should we have some level of compassion for Judas? Should we kind of feel sorry that somehow 
In the, in the bad luck draw of sovereignty, he was the one that was called upon to be designed to fill up with Satan, to betray our Lord, to fulfill the plan of salvation, twisted ages. Did Judas have a free will? And you can get yourself all twisted up on all kinds of things. I want to tell you, he absolutely had a free will. And Judas, you can rest assured, Judas never did anything that he didn't want to do. In fact, Judas didn't do anything he didn't want to do ten times, I figure. And he willfully, he was a willful accomplice of the devil, and he opened himself up to this. Do not feel sorry for Judas. He was a privileged man, and yet he was duplicitous, dishonest, devious, and devilish. What an opportunity he squandered, and what a tragic ending he comes to. Let's notice that his conscience now will get the best of him. And so our Lord is betrayed. We're back at our text. We're in Matthew 27, and we know how the story unfolded. And so when Judas, his betrayer, verse 3, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And I have to say to myself, Judas, what did you think was going to happen? It's like somehow, and notice how it says, he saw. It's like all of a sudden, he saw what was going to happen as though he didn't know what was going to happen. It's interesting. I, I wrote down in words there to get it straight. Often people living selfishly do not allow themselves to consider the consequences of their behavior until it's too late. Have you ever noticed that? You can warn them. You can tell them it's going to happen. You can say, don't do that. And for some reason, they have an ability to shut off their brain until it's all over. The wheels have come off. It's undone. It cannot be put back together. And all of a sudden, oh, I really wish this hadn't happened. Well, what were you thinking to begin with? What did you think was going to happen? How did you think in any way this was going to end well, Judas? I don't know, man. I I just wasn't thinking. I was just paying attention. Yeah, you were paying attention to your own selfish self. And you refuse to have ears to hear. It is a reminder, by the way, that God has embedded in all people everywhere a conscience. And no matter where you're born on planet Earth, no matter what tribe you grow up in, no matter what system of religion you're in, I'm telling you, we have a lawgiver, we have a judge, and he has put inside everybody a meter for justice. You can squelch it, you can suppress it, You can re-educate it, but it will be there, and at some level, it will show up sometime. And Judas is constant, conscience sort of. The first word that we see, letter A, is we see that his conscience kicks in. Conscience is the key word. He changed his mind. Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, what what he saw. Conviction is letter B. Conviction. Now we see that, uh, that he's convicted about his behavior. And that he wants to change his mind. Notice what it says. So he saw that Jesus was condemned. His conscience is bothering him. And then he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so he's under conviction. And he wants to change his mind. We know for sure from his own testimony and the testimony of scripture that he was driven at least partly by his love for money. He had a love for money, and we know that he loved stealing off of the disciples out of the money bag, and we know that the 30 pieces of silver must have meant something to him because it was worth it to him to gain a little bit more money. 1 Timothy 6 talks about money, the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. It talks about how it will leave you pierced through and wounded. 
and will cause great damage. And clearly, Judas is a testimony of the veracity of that teaching. So he's under conviction, but the love of money drove him to it. Now he wants to change his mind. It's way too little, way too late. But he makes a confession, doesn't he? He says in verse 4, letter C, confession. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, for sure, and you could write this in your notes if you want, for sure, he knew Deuteronomy 27, 25. He would have known Deuteronomy 27, 25. It says, cursed is any who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. So in the law of Moses, it was written, cursed is anybody who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. So Judas knew that scripture. And now he's overwhelmed with the reality that he's under a curse, that God condemns those who will take bribes to shed innocent blood. The question is, was this true repentance on the part of Judas? It almost sounds like it. And in the King James, I think it used the word that he repented. So what's going on in Judas's mind here? He's under conviction. He makes a confession, letter C. Is this a true moment? Is this a moment of true repentance? Let me remind you, though, that repentance, true repentance, involves more than, number one, the admission of guilt. The admission of guilt. You see, people will admit their guilt almost easily. In fact, some people take pride in admitting their guilt. It goes something like this. I'll tell you, Pastor Van. I'll tell you, Pastor Van, I did it. I did it. I I did it. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. I'm not going to lie to you. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to show me what a good person they are, that they won't lie to me. They are not sorry for what they did. They're just admitting that they did it, and somehow they take pride in their admission. Yeah, I did it. I I, I admit that I did it. maybe, Maybe it was dumb. Maybe I wasn't thinking. Maybe there's a reason, you know, but I did it. And I know it's not repentance. And Judas, clearly, he's admitting that he did it. I know that he feels badly, and it's even possible to admit it and feel badly and not repent. Secondly, true repentance is more than regret, number two. It's more than regret. Listen, I have talked through thick glass with people in orange jumpsuits or played chess with guys in orange jumpsuits through the bars for hours and talked to them, and they regret it. Man, I sure would love the deer hunt this year. I regret it that you can't do that too. I'd sure like to be at my mama's table for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it would be good when I really regret that they're there, but they are not broken over their sinfulness. They are not repentant. Write this verse down. 2 Corinthians 7.10 speaks to this. 2 Corinthians 7.10. We won't take time to turn there, but it's summarized by the statement that I have underneath number two. Repentance is a godly sorrow It's a godly sorrow that drives us in humility to God for forgiveness. I'll tell you something. 99.9% of the time when someone is truly repentant, they don't have to tell you they're truly repentant. You don't have to ask them if they're truly repentant. True godly sorrow over sin always comes through with authenticity. And fake repentance... It usually makes you want to gag when you see it. And I'm telling you, yes, Judas, Judas's mind is exploding. I think his heart is breaking. And you might even ask the question, did Judas have a chance to repent and confess and forsake and restore his relationship with God? I would say yes. And he chose not to. 
He chose not to, to break before God. So he admits his guilt. He has regret, but I don't think that this is true repentance at all. He confesses it. He now demonstrates his confusion, letter D, and it ends, letter E, in condemnation. I have sinned, verse 4 again, by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. You don't care anything about him. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, and it scatters across the floor, he then ran and departed and went and hanged himself. Here's a man who is most pitiful. He probably committed the most heinous sin that anybody has ever committed. He betrayed his Lord Jesus. Oh, but now let me stop a minute and let me think about how many times I have betrayed my Lord Jesus. Hmm. Maybe I better keep my mouth shut. Leads to his, his confusion leads to his own condemnation. Acts one sixteen adds a little color commentary on it. In preaching there, Peter tells us that Judas evidently went to a place where there was a steep gulch or a gorge of some kind, a cliff. He evidently tied the rope to something that wasn't very stable, the tree branch that was old or the tree came unrooted. When the weight of his body hit the end of the rope, it came undone somehow. He tumbles down on the boulders and Acts one sixteen says he burst open and he died. We don't know the point of death. Did his neck break? I don't know the details. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. He killed himself. He's dead. It's over. He's in hell today. Let me conclude with Judas briefly, and then I want to take just a minute, and I want to talk about suicide. Wouldn't you agree with me that Judas represents one of the most incredible opportunities that a man has ever had to be close to Christ. You you do know that today people could be naming their boys Judas with the great joy of names like Peter and James and John and Mark. Judas. What is it? I became very uncomfortable in my study as I began to relate to some ways that I identify with Judas. Number one, he had a low view of Christ. He had a low view of Christ. Mary, precious Mary, undoes her hair, pours out the perfume on Jesus. She begins to worship him, and he's disgusted with her form of worship. He can't stand it that she's wasting money because, number two, he had a deep love for money. Number one, he had a low view of Christ. Number two, he had a low view of money. And number three, he had hardness of heart. He had a hard heart. Yeah, I'm embarrassed how many times I acknowledge in myself my lack of compassion, my hardness of heart, my criticism of others and what they're doing and why they're doing it. My own drive for love and love for money and materialism. You relate to any of this at all? Yeah, but I would never betray my Lord. I would never betray my Lord. Are you sure? Young people, 
Young people, be really careful because it's going to blindside you. You're going to be in a varsity class in 11th grade or you're going to be in some kind of earth science class in, at your university and all of a sudden some things are going to come up and your professor is going to put you on the spot and you're going to have to name the name of Christ and be embarrassed in front of everybody because you are being pointed out as one of the most unthoughtful, unintellectual, stupid human beings who've ever lived. If you believe the Bible and you believe in a flood and if you believe in, in, in ex nihilo creation in seven literal days and all of a sudden you're going to have to either stand up and name the name of Christ and be a God follower, or you're going to have to deny him. And you're going to come up with some mousy, unclear sentences that are going to roll out of your mouth and nobody in the whole room is going to know anything about you. And you will have really just denied your Lord. That's what you'll have done. In some kind of relationship that comes along And you're going to know that it's a godless relationship and you shouldn't have anything to do with it. And you're going to deny your Lord for that relationship. How much do you think about Jesus? Not very much. If that guy right there can get you away from Jesus. I wasn't pointing at anybody specific. If that guy right there. You see what I'm saying? And so here we have in Judas, someone that convicts us. Someone that shows us the wickedness of the human heart and the ability of our hearts and our minds to implode at the simplest of reasons. He had a low view of Christ. He had a deep love for money. He had a hard heart. Do you see yourself in Judas at all? So now, without a smooth segue, let's look to the text box and Let's conclude today with some remarks about suicide. I know that it's a very serious subject. It's right here in the text. In fact, this is one of seven different accounts in Scripture where people took their own lives. Some of the accounts, other people ended up killing them at the end. On a couple of occasions, uh, men fell on their swords to die. They were still alive, and then other people killed them. But they were mortally wounded, and they had committed an act of self-destruction. We have to ask ourselves a question. In our world today, is this still a relevant subject? And it is. Uh, It might surprise you to know that in the United States this year, 45,000 people will take their own lives. 45,000 people. Of them, there will be almost four times more men than women who will take their own lives. Here's a stunning thought. Of every successful suicide there are 25 attempts that are not successful for a variety of reasons. So every time there's a suicide, it represents 25 more people who have come close. I found it interesting to note that the, the overwhelming demographic of the vulnerable for suicide are white males over 45 and under 60. The second most vulnerable group are seniors, 85 and up, 13%. So why do people do this? We can kind of understand why Judas did what he did. It may have touched your home. It may have touched your family. It may have touched your extended family. The first funeral I ever did was as a young youth pastor, was a 40-year-old man who committed suicide. I've done about five funerals out of 70 for suicide victims. 
will not take a long time, and I'm only going to scratch the surface, and I trust this could be helpful, particularly if you're struggling or if you know someone that's struggling, but I thought that it was appropriate for us to deal with it since it was right here in the text. What drives people to such an extreme? Listen closely. Number one, retaliation. Retaliation. It's the number one reason that young people commit suicide is because they're going to pay you back. A boyfriend or a girlfriend breaks up and they will do this to get back at the person. They'll do it to get back at their endurance. Retaliation. Number two, humiliation. Humiliation, shame, and disgrace can lead people. They are so ashamed of their behavior. And then when it becomes public, they can't process that. You know, this, this matter of shame in the church is something that's really misunderstood. I, I, have, I have found people to be critical of the church in dealing with people who have shame in their lives of all different levels. And I have found that our Bible churches are most criticized, that we don't have grace, and that other churches, man, you can just be whoever you want to be there, and everybody puts their arms around them, and you can just say whatever you want to say. I don't know about that. I've been in Bible churches my whole life, and one thing I know that I have never once, ever, ever, ever seen someone who stood up or came to us and said, I want to tell you this is going on, and I have always seen everybody gather and put their arms around them. Do whatever it takes to help them. If you're shamed and you're humiliated, you need to run to your church, not away from it. Humiliation, shame, and saving face. Number three, letter C, condemnation. This would be where you're extremely guilty. This would be Judas. Extremely guilty over something. You could add the phrase self-execution. Self-execution. I have done something that is so despicable. I have done something that is so horrible. I cannot stand myself even. And so you know, and somehow in their skewed logic of the moment and in the emotionalism of the moment, they think that if they execute themselves, somehow that will earn them a little bit of penance with God. I know I deserve to die for this. I'll just do it. Listen, the cross and the blood of Christ are greater than all that. There is no sin that the blood of Christ doesn't cover. It doesn't necessarily take away some consequences. But I'm telling you, self-execution is no answer. Letter D, I use the word mutilation. This is self-hatred. This is self-hatred. This is people who have such a low self-esteem that they despise themselves. They don't want to look at themselves in the mirror somehow. And there's, I'm scratching the surface here, but there's, there's so many different things that might have happened in their world, things that they were told, things that people did to them, things that they encountered, something about themselves. And they look in the mirror and they loathe themselves. And so they destroy themselves. Guys who are self-hatred, Misinformation is real big these days in the news for suicides, mostly guys who are wearing dynamite vests and vests full of old nails with dynamite. Suicide attack bombers often commit suicide based on misinformation. What a surprise to wake up in the pit of hell instead of in front of 99 virgins. But whatever their motive is, they think that somehow they're going to get something out of it, and it's misinformation They think somehow their decision will result in good for themselves or for others. 
Lots of times people who commit suicide think this about their family. They think that somehow the world will be a better place without them, and so good will come of this. It's nothing but a lie from Satan. Relocation is huge, letter F. I believe that this is the most common reason that Christians commit suicide. Yes, Christians can commit suicide. They are so weary of whatever their circumstances are, whatever it has been going on. I know precious people who have committed suicide in the older octogenarian demographic, just getting prescribed, diagnosed, diagnosed with Alzheimer's, for example. Don't want my wife to have to take care of me. Don't have kids to take care of me. I'm already in my 80s. Let's just go to heaven. Let's just relocate right now. All kinds of different things. Wanting to escape circumstances. Circumstances. Chronic pain can bring this on. Frustration, depression. This is absolute hopelessness. Depression is a huge subject and its source. Sometimes it's sin-induced. Sometimes there's no real good explanation for why you're just in a deep pit and you lose hope. So you just think there's just no use. Hopelessness. H is malfunction. This is not exhaustive nor deep, but malfunction. This would be psychological, physiological, medical, and mental issues. In this category, the person usually isn't of sound Logic. There's something skewed, either a chemical imbalance or a side effect of a medication that they've taken that is now firing things in their brain that is, and I don't know the answer to all that, but it's, it's not really, that's why a person who you would never imagine who would do this, I've seen that many times. Well, what happened to that person? And then you find out that there were things that you didn't know anything about and that they didn't even understand about themselves. And they needed help. So is it an unpardonable sin? Is suicide an unpardonable sin? Before they, it is certainly an unrepentable sin. Now sometimes people, before they commit suicide, will ask God to forgive them before they commit it. But once you're dead, you can no longer access the blood of Christ at the cross, can you? When you're alive, you can run to the cross. That's where you run. So it is unrepentable, and clearly it is a sin. Let us be clear. All suicide is sin. And you can, somebody's going to come up to me and talk about a good man who will give his life for good people. You're going to use the illustration of a guy who, gra- who wraps himself around a hand grenade to save all of his buddies. That's not a sin, I don't guess. You can think of all kinds of moral dilemmas. I'm not thinking like that. Thinking about suicide in general, as we understand it, is a sin. It is condemned in Scripture because it is self-murder, and murder is clearly condemned in Scripture. But can I tell you that it is covered by the blood? Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know, when you read and study the book of Romans, for example, Paul is arguing for the reality that when I come to Christ and I go to the cross and the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin, that I am all of my sin in the past and all of my sin in the present and all of my sin in the future is under the blood and it is covered. And so it it is not an unpardonable sin. It is an unrepentable sin. 
does not keep you out of heaven if you're born again. But don't play games with God. I mean, you can begin to think of all kinds of theological nuance here. Oh, what about some old guy that's been in church and he's just a normal guy and he lives life and now he's got cancer and, and uh, he's back in the back bedroom dying and now he's past the point of being able to be cogent and of sound mind and I wonder, did he get all of his sin taken care of? before he got into that mental state. And when he passes away, is it possible that there's some unconfessed sin that's present in his life? Of course there is. It's why some systems, one big, huge, worldwide system, likes to get a priest at your bedside so that you can do penance or do last rites. Somehow get your sin forgiven right before you breathe your last and show up next in front of God. I'll tell you that the blood of Christ covers us from all sin. But let's not play games with God. So what if? And here we will conclude. What if you are contemplating? What if you're dealing with somebody? What if? And again, there's much more that could be said and known about this subject. But letter A, can I remind you that it is a time to believe the promises of God and that suicide is a testimony of disbelief and doubt in God's promises. Psalm 91 says that he will take care of us and deliver us. Psalm 46. So when I get to a place where I'm ready to commit suicide and I am a child of God, what I am saying is that God is not adequate for my life. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I doubt that his promises will sustain me. And I know, I know what it is to be at a place where you don't want to doubt, but it's like you can't help yourself from doubting. But I'm telling you, it is a time to rest in faith on the promises of God. Letter B, it is a time to relinquish self-rule. Do not remove yourself from the sovereign rule of God over your life. Listen, your days are written in God's book before any one of them come to be, and we have no permission to take human life apart from Romans 13 and the sword of government and just war. We can't abort babies. We can't kill our children no matter how bad they get. We can't kill our neighbor no matter how much we upset, he upsets us. We can't kill our husband no matter how much he upsets us. And we can't kill grandma because she's taken a lot of time in medicine. We do not have permission. And we cannot take our own lives. Human life is precious. And, it, and the sanctity of human life is so sacred. Days that God says you have no permission to do this. Only I can do this. And only I know your days. And who knows what God is doing in the process of your pain. Who knows what God is teaching your home and your family and your neighbors when you take care of somebody who's dying for 10 years and you want to just do euthanasia. Who knows what God is doing? Don't self-rule. And it is, indeed, let her see, a time to be shepherded. It is a time to be shepherded. Do not let your pain, your pride, or your shame lead you to leave this tragic legacy. You must get help. And 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted above what you are able and he will provide a way of escape. And Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he restores my soul. And he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death and you do not have to fear evil.
That's the kind of heavenly father and good shepherd we have. I know this topic is very difficult and deep, and I have just touched upon it. And I trust that if you would be struggling at any level, that you would seek help immediately. Come talk to me, talk to your parents, talk to a friend. God is faithful. He'll deliver you. And you know what will happen? It'll become part of your testimony someday. It'll become part of your testimony. Can I tell you where I was in a deep ditch? And I'm no longer there, man. Give God a chance to prove himself with your needs. Let's stand and close in prayer. Thank you for your patience. So, Father, we need your help. We need your deliverance. Grow us in our faith. Grow us in our confidence to trust your word, to take you at your word, and to live it out. For those who might be struggling today, Lord, would you just encourage them? Father, at best, the strongest among us are weak. And we're reminded from the Apostle Paul in your word that it's in our weakness that we find our strength in you. When we're weak, then we're strong. That you take the humble and you lift them up. You give rest to the weary. And you give shelter to the one in need. And you are our refuge and our strength and an ever-present help in time of trouble. Thank you so much. Help us to have eyes of faith. We know that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And help us to walk by faith and not by sight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.